regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Dana Mira, a senior expert and manager in the data field since 2012 with a data science career in Berlin startup, where her work focused on machine learning for predictive analytics. She's also an, an experienced teacher and mentor. Dana is the director of DataLift and a founding member of the AI Guild community. So Dana, glad to have you on the show. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Fabulous. So by web introduction, I believe that you were originally born in Brazil and then you study applied mathematics back in college in the late 2000s. So can you share a bit about your upbringing and talk about your undergraduate experience? Yes, so I am indeed from Brazil and I studied in the University of Campinas, which is in my hometown where I was born. And it was something that I always dreamt of because I was born in the city and the city is quite famous for the university. So it was always my dream to study there. It's one of the top universities in math and computer science as well in Brazil and in Latin America. So I was pretty much privileged to have the chance to study there and I made a lot of friends for life there. And to be honest, when I started uh, thinking about what I would study, I didn't have the idea to become a data scientist. So when I started college was back in 2007, there was not a thing as a data scientist, as a profession yet, but I always liked math. So even in school, And when it came about making a choice for studying, I thought maybe something around engineering, but also because thinking of my career, right? It was known what it's like to be an engineer as a profession, but I always enjoyed more the math aspect. So in the end, I started studying applied math. And that was quite interesting because it gave me the theoretical background of mathematics, linear algebra, statistics, and also the basics or the foundations for programming. So I learned about algorithms and I learned my first programming language uh, that is C. Mm -hmm. So after that, I could also learn a bit more on MATLAB and R. So I pretty much had all the basic skills to become a data scientist even though I didn't know that's what I would do. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite interesting because by the time that I finished my studies, I was very much aware that I wanted to go to industry. I didn't want to continue in the academic career like most of my peers. I was not interested at the moment to do a master's. So I looked for an opportunity to apply my knowledge in uh, industry. And that's when I found out about the data analyst, data scientist, and all the data world. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, why did you become interested in mathematics at the first place, back in your childhood? 
I think it was because for me, it was something that was easy to understand in a sense that it is an exact science. So it's different from, let's say, geography or history in which you have to read and interpret and each person has a different interpretation and you have to really exercise this. I was not a very talkative person when I was a child, so I was very shy and introvert. So to me, the numbers made a lot of sense and they were either right or wrong. And I could figure out by myself. While the other subjects, maybe I had to talk with other people or there was this aspect of not being 100% right or wrong. It was always depending on interpretations. Mm -hmm. So that's what drew me initially to math. And then as I maybe I can say evolved as a person, I figured that there are some nuances in the other subjects that are also making it more interesting sometimes than the exact sciences like math. Mm, I see. And you mentioned a little bit about all these skill sets that you pick up during college. Mm -hmm. Do you recall any of your favorite classes that you take? Yeah, for sure. There were the more applied ones. So that's also the reason why I didn't want to study pure mathematics. I chose to go to applied mathematics Mm -hmm. because I wanted to understand what could we do with the tools that we have in math. Like, how can they be applied for something in our real life? You know, that it's outside the books at the moment. And yes, I think those are the ones I enjoyed the most. So we had, for example, mathematical models in physics, Mm. things like this, that was more interesting for me. But they were also more towards the end of college, not at the beginning. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And you talked a little bit earlier about having that desire to go into industry after finishing your undergrad. And so mm-hmm. after college, you work as a marketing intelligence analyst at Bootstrap DTM and then as a data scientist at a company called Hypermy R. What were some of the lessons that you learned during your time working in Brazil? Yes, right. So I started working as a marketing intelligence analyst, which was basically doing uh, models to understand customer behavior. So Most of the times we work with marketing teams from other companies and mostly in retail. So they always wanted to do some targeted promotion for some customer uh, segment or for a specific product that they were launching. So what I learned is that we need to connect what we were doing on the statistical or mathematical side to whatever business application was requiring. So for them, it was not important what kind of models we use it, but it was more important that we could find the right target customers for them or the right segment, or even to find out who were the ones that had the highest probability of coming back to their stores, things like that. So in the background, we were running different models and figuring out which ones had the best performance or were most accurate, but they didn't care about this in the end. They just cared that they could find the best people and they could have a higher margin or a best result of their campaigns. Mm -hmm. And this was interesting because at that moment, I was still pretty much in the phase that I was in love with math. Even though it was applied math, but still I was really much in love with all the models and the algorithms. And I really wanted to make like the best performing model and always striving to get that 1% increase in accuracy or whatever other performance metric we had. 
And this is when a lot of my senior colleagues and my team lead at the moment, they would get me and say, Daniel, this is already what they want. It's like 1% best is not going to, let's say, change the list of top 100 customers, or it's not going to change the list of segments that we have. So in the end, it's not going to change the output for our customer or our deliverable is still the same. And this is what we need to spend our time on and not trying to improve the model because this would be more of a research work, right? To improve the model. So this is what I learned to put the customer first Mm -hmm. and work hard until we get what they need and not beyond that. Because beyond that was really for myself. You know, it was really because I wanted to get that better model because the mathematician inside wanted to see if there was a possibility to get something better. But as a consultant or as a marketing analyst, this was not what was required. So I had to balance a bit what were my personal motivations and what was the motivation for the work and the company that I worked for and my team. Yeah, sounds like... You have to make that transition from poorly focused on interesting technical problems to adopting a more like customer-centric mindset, you know, whether the thing that you actually build actually make a meaningful business impact to the customer, which is making that transition from like a poor academic perspective into a more industry perspective is definitely valuable to learn, especially at the early stage, I believe. Yes, precisely, precisely that. So I learned it by working with people that already had that mindset and could pass it on to me. So I was not lost in this loop of trying to improve the model and running another round of training, but rather wrapping up and being able to work on the presentation. So how are we going to present this to the customer? How can they also benefit from this solution? And focusing a lot on that aspect as well helped me to also do my job better in the end, because I knew then from the beginning of a new project, I would know what to focus on. It's like working backwards, you know, you know what you have to finish with. So when you start, you start from a better perspective or you start from a better starting point than the previous project when I didn't know exactly. Yeah, I think working backwards is extremely, from a customer part of you, is extremely important when you are practicing in the industry. So I believe that, you know, while working in the industry, you're also getting another master degree in computer science from the University of Fluminense. And I was just, you know, looking up a little bit about the work that you did for your master. And mm-hmm. you did your thesis on scalable implementation of the alternating list square algorithms for collaborate filtering recommendation. So would you mind yes. unpacking your thesis in more detail? Yes, definitely. So the background, why I decided to do this, I mentioned before, I was not interested in doing a master's. And then after working, I realized, okay, maybe I want to do a master's. It was even supported by my team lead because we were working a lot with the marketing teams and doing a lot of customer understanding for them. And I ended up doing some sort of recommendation project for a client. So the idea was what kind of products would a customer like to buy in their next purchase? That was the question from the client. And I started answering this by doing some predictive models. 
And then running some queries on the internet, I found out about this topic of recommendation systems. And I figured out that this was a big topic in computer science because it has a lot of complexity in the algorithms. Also, they are very expensive algorithms. So this was 2014 and it was the beginning of Spark. So it was quite interesting because before we only had Hadoop as a technology for big data. And this was uh, around the time that they launched the Spark version one. So I decided, okay, I will go to, to do a master's my time after work. And I will learn how those big data technologies work. And that's what I focused on. So I focused on one algorithm for recommendation, which is the alternating list squares or ALS. Mm -hmm. And I compared the two different implementations, one in Hadoop and the other one in Spark. And the idea is that this is a very complex algorithm to run because it's an iteration. So it's basically trying to optimize this alternating list square is an optimization technique. And it says alternating because it takes turns in the optimization. So if we think about recommendations, we have products and customers. So it tries to alternate between optimizing the problem for the items first, so the products, and then it alternates for the customers. And then it goes back and forth doing this optimization based on the previous iteration until it gets into this place where you don't optimize more than some delta that you predefined. So when you have to do this multiple times, it also means that there's a lot of change in the matrix that you have that represents this problem. And in the end, you have a problem that iterates in a lot of matrices. And this is what causes it to be computationally expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's why at the time it was kind of revolutionary that there was a new technology to do that, which was Spark. Because until then, there was only Hadoop, which was doing all of those iterations using uh, in-disk memory. So for each iteration, you had to wait the time for it to be written to the disk and also to read it from disk. And then with Hadoop, it's all in memory. So it's much quicker because you don't have those to wait for those time to save to disk and read from disk. It's all in memory, so it's all happening in cache. And it was, of course, much faster than the implementation in Hadoop. Basically, in my thesis, I just learned about the technologies. I learned about the algorithms. I implemented the algorithms myself, and I had results that proved that the theory was right. So it was much faster. And yeah, to me, it was interesting because I also learned then how to program in Python, for example. This was something that I had never used before, and it turned out to be a great advantage for working as a data scientist, because as we know, Python is one of the most popular languages for data scientists now. Yeah, for sure. So the context is you already did some recommendation work with your employers at the time, and the motivation for getting this degree is to expand your repertoire about record system in the real world, and also getting exposed to Hadoop and Spark new technologies that might be relevant that you can apply for day-to-day -day work, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So it was for me a chance to 
learn about this entire new world about recommendation algorithms, because what I did at work was just one solution. It was not even an official algorithm. It was basically a bunch of models that we put together. So I learned, okay, there is specific algorithms to do that. How can they be implemented? What kind of technologies we need? Even the programming language I learned was a new one. So it was a lot of new learnings that for sure made part or became part of my repertoire as a data scientist. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, this whole period, you really up-level your skill set and then become a learning machine. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, like you work during the day and then you go to classes in the afternoon and evening, right? Yes. How, how did you balance your time, structure your day to be productive, you know, both working and studying at the same time? Yes, that was quite challenging. So I appreciate the question. Yes, as I mentioned, I had a lot of support from my team lead to pursue the master's degree. So initially, I was like, okay, I would be interested in doing this. And I started looking for schools where I could sign up. And there were some options from private schools and some options for public schools. And in Brazil, the public universities are usually the best quality ones, but also they are the most demanding ones. So usually those are the ones that get people into really academic careers. So they demand that you stay there full-time in the university and they even put classes like from morning to afternoon. So most of the times when you go study in a public university, like when I did my undergrad, it's a full-time thing. And at the moment I had to tell my employer that either you have to back me up financially so I can do a school that it's only in the evenings, Or you have to give me uh, extra time off so I can be at the university during the day. And then they told me, okay, we um, appreciate that you really want to do this. And it's also going to be a qualification that brings us back into the company some knowledge. So we are going to support you by letting you work four times a week. And then on the day that you have free, you have the time to go to the university for classes, Mm. which was great, right? I was, okay, so I can go to the university once a week. But then when you look at the schedule, all all the classes happen twice a week. It's like one and a half hour courses and either like Monday and Wednesday or Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm. So then I had to uh, split that one day off into either two mornings off or two afternoons off. And this is how I did the entire um, two years. I was doing one class per semester only. Mm-hmm. That was either in the morning or in the afternoon, two days a week. And I also took some other that I could just do the test and pass because I had a high grade on the test. Just because I studied applied math, so some of them were really easy for me, like basic statistics, Mm -hmm. I could do it just by doing a test. And then they didn't make me go to all the classes. So that was the way that I organized myself. And then I had the evenings mostly to continue staying at the university when I had the classes in the afternoon. I would stay in the library after class and I would take that time to study to get help from my colleagues that were also taking the same courses with me or even to do some projects that we did in a team. Mm -hmm. And more towards the end, I used that time to work with my advisor so I could finish to write my thesis. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you come up with a system to structure your day very, very well. 
And another Indeed. point that I'm curious, so this decrease in computer science and your background is in applied mathematics. So that means you probably have to do a lot of programming, right? Yes. How did you personally study programming coming more from a math background? Because I feel like, you know, a lot of people have struggled learning how to program. And I'm curious to hear about your journey. Was anything that works well for you when you start to picking up like coding in a more regular basis? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is a good question indeed, because, well, like I said before, in my undergraduate studies, I had one course about algorithms. So that was more about algorithm thinking. Mm -hmm. And then I had one or two mandatory classes about or programming with C. Mm -hmm. And that is a very low level kind of programming language in which you have to define everything. You even have to define the memory allocation you want for each of your variables. So if you program in Python, you just need to say like, I don't know, A equals 10, and then you assign the variable A. In C, you have to first allocate the memory size. So you need to know, like, I want to have an integer and what is the size of the integer and then allocate that. And then you say, which is your variable and what is their value? So I had a pretty much painful, I can say painful experience with programming because it was not fun. Mm. And also in C at the time, at least we were using some sort of UI that was not very friendly. So every time you finish typing a line of command in C, you have to end it with a semicolon. If you don't put the semicolon, it just doesn't execute. And it will give you some error when you try to execute and you don't know why, and you are looking for errors, and then you figure out it was like the semicolon that you were missing in line 10. So it is painful. It was painful programming in C for me. And at work, I was doing a lot of SQL, which I learned at work, and I did R, which is much simpler. So I started to understand that programming doesn't always have to be painful, and it can be very useful in a way that you don't have to repeat a lot of stuff. So if you have your code, Mm -hmm. next time you don't start from scratch, you can copy some of the stuff from before and adjust it. Uh, even working as a team, you have GitHub, for example. So you take stuff from the repository and you work from that. It's very rare that you start from scratch, like you have a blank page to start programming. So I think this was the big difference that I learned about programming compared to when I was in school and then when I was working. Mm-hmm. Because of that, when I went to do computer science as a master's, I already had in mind those, maybe I can say tricks, from programming at work. So I knew that I wouldn't need to start from scratch. I knew that I could choose a programming language that was easier or less complex. That's why, for example, I chose Python. I could also have chosen Java or Scala, but I chose Python because I could choose and it was easier to do. And then I also learned more about this aspect of doing collaborative work. So when I was at the university first, we only had, in my undergrad, we only had exercises and projects that we had to deliver individually. That meant I really had to do my own work. But for the master's, it was more group projects. So we would split 
what each person would write the code for, like each part of the project. And then we would all upload it to GitHub. And with that, I could see other people's code and I could learn from their code. So that helped a lot. And also I would have people that I could ask questions directly. So mm -hmm. I could say, okay, this is not working. Help me because we all need to submit this and it needs to run. Otherwise nobody gets the point, you know? So that helped a lot. So working with other people, doing code together, like code reviews and all of that using GitHub, that helped a lot for me to see how other people code and learn just by seeing their code. Yeah. So really two things here. The first one is understanding that programming doesn't have to be painful, choosing language that is intuitive and makes sense for you Python in this scenario. And then second part is really collaboration, like seeing how other people write code and then adapting best practices, code reviews to improve your own technical skill set as well. So those two are the key things that allows you to embrace programming, right? Exactly. You're right. Circling back into your career. So you finished that degree and in September 2015, you moved to Berlin to work as a data scientist. So my question is twofold. First, mm -hmm. what urged you to move to Berlin? And second, can you walk through your time working there in some of the startup in your initial phase in Germany? Yes. So what happened is I finished my master's and it was always something I also wanted to do is to have an experience living abroad. So I knew that at some point I would look for a job in some other country. I didn't have any preference. So I cannot say that it was my dream to come to Berlin, but there was something that uh, I have two sisters. So one of my sisters at the moment when I finished my master's, she was spending the summer in Berlin. So I was hearing from her all the experiences in Berlin and how it was a great city. And of course, it got me curious to know more about the city. Mm -hmm. And it happened by chance that a recruiter found me on LinkedIn. So this was really a story that I was not believing in the beginning. I was like, maybe it's a scam or something. But they were saying, oh, we like your profile. Would you like to have an interview with us via Skype? And like in 2015, it was not common to do Skype interviews, no? So yeah. I was like, yeah, I will do it. Like it's not going to cost me any money or if they start asking weird questions, I just hang up. And it turned out to be quite interesting. So it was an interview for a startup and they were looking for people that had exactly my experience. So working with data and predictive models for customer behavior. So it was all my experience with marketing and recommendation and so on that I could apply for a specific business. And yeah, after three months, I got my, so they offered me the job. I said yes, and they sponsored my visa. And then after three months, I got my paperwork ready. And I said, okay, now it's time to go there and see what this is about. It was really a great chance for me because the company really supported me in the move. Like even with the sponsoring of the visa. And it was for me a great experience working in startups. So it's a very dynamic environment and also people from all over the world. So I was not the only one coming from abroad. Even though they are based in Germany, they had people from all over the place. And I got to know a lot of different cultures. Also mm -hmm. was the first time that I was working in English. So for me, it was also a task for, I don't know, 10 years of studying English at school and doing English courses. Yeah. So 
I was really uh, proud of that because I made it in a way that the company saw that there was value in my skills and I was able to work also in a foreign language. I did have some difficulties at first to adapt to the different culture and even Berlin is a very multicultural city. So you can work and you can even live just speaking English, but of course you need to learn German if you want to live in Germany. So I also had trouble learning the language. Now I can say I can do the basics in German, but I am not confident to work in German, for example, especially with native speakers. So I think that is the main thing that happened. So I wanted to have an experience abroad and then the opportunity came, even though it was a surprise, I decided to take it because it felt like one in a lifetime opportunity. And even though I was scared, what I thought at the moment was, well, if it doesn't work out, I can just come back to Brazil. So the idea was I go there, I see if I like it or not. If I don't, I will have some place to come back to. And yeah, yeah it's almost seven years now that I'm living in Berlin. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious. So you mentioned about adapting to German culture, working in an English-speaking environment. Was there any meaningful differences that you observe between working style of residents and German? For sure. So what I can say is that, first of all, working in a startup, It's very different than working for a corporate German company. So I didn't have that experience. So I cannot compare to that. What I can say is comparing, I think, more the Brazilian way of working and the startup in Germany or the multicultural way of working. And this is something that even in the workplace in Germany, in Berlin, I could see differences between depending on the people's nationalities that I would work with, you know, from the colleagues. So colleagues from Germany or colleagues from the UK or from the US or from France, they would also be different one another. But I think the most different thing that uh, I found is that In Brazil, we take the lunch break seriously. So we do have like a full hour of lunch break and we go outside to eat and we talk with colleagues and it's sort of like a social thing to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, yes, we have lunch in the office. Maybe we have some project to finish so we have to eat quickly and we just bring food or order food. But that is not the norm. And here it, it is common. You know, a lot of people take maybe like 15 minutes or 30 minutes to eat or they eat at their desk or they just eat a sandwich. And yes, in Brazil, lunch is the main meal of the day. So it's when you have your warm meal and you have your big meal. So for us, it is very important. But here, I think in Germany, most people have the dinner as their main meal when they like get together with their families and have a warm meal. So lunch is really quick and something that they do just so they're not hungry during their work day and they don't want to waste time on it. So yeah. that was quite a big difference. Yeah, it sounds like the German culture emphasis more on the efficiency. They want to get the best out of the time. And the <laughs> yes, right. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context of how this opportunity came about and how you moved to Berlin for data scientist opportunity. Mm-hmm. Around the year of 2018, you worked as a data scientist at a company called MyTask Group, and you were responsible for the predictive analytics and machine learning modeling function 
How was your time there compared to some of your earlier startup opportunities? That was also the reason why I was excited for the move when I got the offer from my toys, because that is German established company for mid-sized company. And before I was working only for startups. So I always had this multicultural environment, very dynamic with rather small teams. So I think the biggest company or the biggest startup I worked for had maximum 300 people. Mm-hmm. And usually in data, we had a few people. So maybe it was me as data scientist, maybe a data engineer, data analyst, maybe one other data scientist, or maybe a back-end engineer helping with data engineering stuff. So it was, in a way, we know that data science is very complex and it has a lot of different roles and a lot of different skills involved. So when I was working for startups, I learned a lot because I had the chance to wear all those hats. Like sometimes I was doing analytics dashboards. Sometimes I was doing data pipelines. Sometimes I was doing machine learning models. And that made me focus on a lot of learning. And I could also see that I had built a very good foundation for all the data science uh, work, like from end to end. And I had the time to then start focusing on what I thought were my strengths. So at this moment, I wanted to be able to continue learning, but focused on specific tasks. For example, I learned that, okay, I like programming, but it's not what I like the most. So I don't want to be coding the data pipelines every day. Maybe I can do it sometimes, or it's good that I have done it. So I have felt what it's like to work with this. What are the pros and cons? And when I work with a data engineer by my side, I will value a lot more the work of this person because I know what it has been like for me to do this. But I also know it's not my strength or it's not what I like to do best. And then at the moment that I decided this, I realized that it would be hard for me to keep working for the startup because it would keep demanding me to do a lot of different roles, uh, while I wanted to really focus on one aspect of data, which is the machine learning models. Mm-hmm. And when I started, uh, or when I had the offer to move to my choice, this was exactly the case. So in a bigger company, but also not that big, I still had flexibility to do different things and learn different things, but I would have my own defined role for predictive analytics and machine learning. And I would have by my side data analysts to do the dashboarding. I would have the engineers to do the data pipelines. Yeah, what you said is like in a startup environment, you tend to be the only data person. And because of that reason, you're responsible for, you know, the whole data procedure from engineering to an analytics to modeling. And then when you move to my toys, because the size company is bigger, you can focus more specifically on your strength, which is predictive analytics and ML modeling with the additional support of the more robust data engineering college who can perform some of the data ranging stuff for you, right? Yes. So the way I like to think about data science as a discipline is a little bit comparing with MMA, mixed martial arts, because in data science, you have a lot of different skills that you need to combine to be able to make it work, right? You have the analyst stuff, the scientist stuff, the engineering stuff. In MMA also, it's mixed martial arts. So you have to learn a lot of different techniques from different combat sports and 
if you don't have all those mix of combat sports, you're not performing well in a competition. So I think in that sense, they can be comparable because they are similar in complexity and number of different skills. Uh -huh. But the difference is data science is a team sport. So if you have all those skills in a team that is multiple people together combined and complementing the skills of one another, it works. For MMA, you have to have one person. So it's the one fighter that needs to dominate all those techniques to be able to perform well because you are combating one-on-one. It's not team versus team. Mm -hmm. So I do enjoy watching MMA fights, but yeah, I would not be an MMA fighter professionally, just a professional data scientist. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Do you practice MMA? You know, like you go to MMA classes outside of work? Um, I go to a martial arts gym, but I am practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think that practice really builds your discipline and builds both your physical and your mental capacity to handle pressure. Yes. I plan to do a lot more BJJ and data science in my life. I have been doing BJJ since five years now, and I can see a lot of parallels between developing a career in data science and developing as a martial artist. And yeah. yes, for sure, this discipline is one of them, also problem solving. So there are many things that can be applied or transferred from one to the other. Yeah, and although like in that sense, it's probably a career ladder, and it's almost felt like, you know, you move from white belt to blue belt to black belt in, in jiu-jitsu, right? Yes, exactly. But, you know, when you talk about the progression of BJJ, it is clear because you have the belt. So you know where you are kind of in the career. The goal is to be the black belt. And when you start your white belt and you get awarded the blue, purple, brown, so you get to the black. Mm -hmm. But the way you are awarded that next belt is not an official way. You know? So each gym has their own philosophy. Yeah. Some of them require you to do a test. Some of them require you to have enough frequency in classes. But ultimately, it's your uh, coach that will follow your evolution and award you the next promotion. Mm -hmm. And this is the part that I think is similar to data science as a career evolution. Because sometimes being a senior, for example, is really about the promotion. It's about your team lead or your manager seeing that you progressed and that you are not junior or mid-level anymore. But we don't have clear or established criteria, right? Mm -hmm. So it is not easy to, to standardize yeah. when you are junior, when you're mid-level, when you're senior, when you're expert, when you're, I don't know, even beyond that, if you're going the individual contributor track, like when you're the principal. So there is not a defined way to award someone when they increase their level of knowledge or their skill. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, that context. I really like that analogy. And we talk a little bit about that career later on in our conversation, given some of your work with AIGO. Uh, so we definitely can touch more on, on that point. Cool. Before that, I believe that during this period, you also got involved with an organization called Data Science for Social Good in Berlin as the mm -hmm. data ambassador. And you also teach a SQL masterclass at the data science retreat. How did this experience help you level up as a data scientist? Thank you for the question, because that's exactly the point. I started to do those things outside my workplace because I was looking for ways to level up. 
I mentioned before that at some point I realized, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to focus on machine learning applications for predictive analytics. And I would like to grow on that direction, not learn everything. Because I'm also a person that likes to learn a lot. So I decided, okay, where can I get that specific learning that I'm looking for? So one of the ways was to go for a volunteer role in this NGO. So Data Science for Social Good Berlin is working with NGOs in any other fields when they have a data challenge. And the work I did with them as a data ambassador is an understanding of the requirements. So what are the questions maybe that the NGO needs answering and understanding the feasibility. Do they have data that would allow data scientists to get to that answer? So in that, I learned a lot about the other aspects, let's say, before you start the commitment to do a project. I learned how to, again, putting the customer first, understanding what are their needs, what is it that they expect from this project, and then asking them about the data and getting access to their data, which is not an easy thing, given all the privacy concerns, how then to understand the feasibility of the project. So I have all my tools, all the algorithms I know. I think I understand their question. Now, can I get this answer from the data that they have using the algorithms I know? So this was like the pre-work I had to do just to check feasibility. I didn't have to do the entire project by myself, but I had to do the first check and data cleaning, data normalization, all of that in order for other volunteers to work on the project in a weekend hackathon that we call Datathon. Mm -hmm. So that was my work. And this is what I learned from it, really how to understand project feasibility and how to work with customers directly. Mm -hmm. And then I started also teaching and this was in a data science bootcamp. And that was quite interesting for me because for one, I learned that you only really know about a subject when you're able to teach it to someone else. So I was working with SQL since 2012 when I had my first role as a marketing analyst. But then in 2015, 16, when I started teaching is when I really had to understand why am I doing this? Yeah. Or what does this mean? Or is there a better way to do this? So I started questioning a lot and understanding a lot better the logic of the SQL queries and also how to execute them in a more effective way, which helped me a lot to run faster queries. But I also had the chance to grow my network. Mm -hmm. And I, get, I got to know the other teachers for the other classes. And that made me have a network of professionals that I could ask for support, not only the people that were my work colleagues, I also grew the network uh, from the students because they went on to finish the bootcamp and find their own jobs. So in that way, I also got back from them, like what was their job like and what kind of things they were doing at their companies. So that was pretty cool. And I think that networking is one of the better ways to grow in your career because you'll see what are other possibilities. You can ask questions from other people. You'll learn about other opportunities as well that maybe you wouldn't have heard yourself directly. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context and the motivation for that. It's really about learning about project management, project scoping, apply feasibility of a project, 
while working at yes for social good and then for the being a teacher is really like deepening your understanding of SQL as well as building out that network of practitioners who can rely upon as you navigate your career right so those are some key learnings that you got from this volunteer experience exactly and to that point about building a network that kind of transitioned pretty well to my next question so since uh, August of 2019 you have been a founding member of AI Guild a go-to community for data and professionals advancing AI and adoption in Europe. Can you share the founding story of the community? Yes, I'm happy to share about this because it has to do a lot of those activities that I was doing and growing my own network. So the first thing I noticed is that we, well, as we all working in the field probably know, there are not so many women working in data science. So that was actually my first uh, curiosity. I was like, okay, can I find other women working in the field? Because until then, I had had few female colleagues at work. So most of the time, even I was the only woman of the team, and I did not enjoy that. So one of the reasons why I started reaching out to other networks was to find other women working in the field and see if I could learn from them how to not only support each other, but to support more women to entering the field. And initially we had this group, like a networking group for women working in data science. We used to get together in one of our companies, like the company that one of us worked for, and have some sessions about what is it like to be a woman in your company? Does your team support? Do you work with other women? So those were the first kind of topics. But then we also learned that we have a lot of support from our peers. So the people that I met throughout my career, they always supported me. I can uh, go up with the example that I gave before when I went for the master's that my team lead supported me to do that and gave me the free days from work to be at the university. And that was a uh, male. So it was not a female tech lead, it was a male tech lead and still he supported me a lot like he would support all the other uh, male members of the team. So I didn't feel discriminated or I didn't feel more or less uh, motivated because I was uh, the only woman in the field or in the team. So that really made us think about, okay, might make sense to broaden the circle and not only talk with other women about this, but also talk with everyone because everyone working together towards the same goal might be uh, better or maybe more people can learn from our experiences if we just talk to everyone and not talk only between women. And then we started talking about other challenges in data science, which were not only the fact that we would like to have more women, but also, for example, the fact that we would like to have more impact on businesses. Like a lot of the times we work on projects that in which we develop, for example, a machine learning model, but then maybe it doesn't get used, you know, maybe it doesn't get deployed and nobody knows what we did and it didn't feel like that was right. So we started sharing the, about the challenge of deployment. And the other challenge was, well, when we do that development and we, there is no deployment, nobody sees the impact of our models. Then also nobody understands exactly in the company what we are doing as data people. And then we don't have a lot of support for career growth. 
So somehow that also translates into a career path that was not moving forward like we would like to. So we decided, okay, we start this community for anyone working in data. The more people, the better. So we are not going to do that only for women. And we are going to discuss all those issues in a way that we can figure out if we find solutions together. So really bottom up. And that's how the AI Guild started. Yeah, for sure. I want to circling back into your earlier part about having that small get-together with other women working in data science at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you actually written an article about this on how, you know, you co-organize a networking group for women in Berlin and then get together. Reflecting on some of those conversations, what do you see to be some of the main barriers that preventing more women to get into the data field? Well, I think there are many different aspects to this, and I don't think any of the aspects is big enough, mm-hmm. but I think there are a lot of small things that when they get together, they become big and they have the impact. You know, so for one, I think it starts really in schools, like for young girls to understand that they can also be good at math. So it was not my case, fortunately, but I have heard a lot of stories of women that were interested in math and were not supported by their teachers or their parents, or they just didn't think that was for them. And the other thing is that we have a lot of, I would say, lack of female leaders. So when you don't see someone that is, I don't know, the CIO or CDO that is a woman, maybe you don't think you as a woman can make it. And I think that's the same for a lot of other underrepresented groups. Mm -hmm. So it is about also having more people that have done it and that are showing it. So you can see that there are people there and Because of that, you can also make it, the example kind of. And then there is also the topic of the general biases of society that could impact women's self-confidence and self-perception. So in a male-dominated field, it's hard to be a woman just because maybe you feel like you don't belong there. And this is the kind of thing that we can tackle together because when everyone creates a supportive and welcoming environment for everyone, doesn't matter your gender or your race or your religion, then everyone wins. And especially in data science, because I do think that the more diverse teams and thoughts we have in data, the more creative we can be and the better the solutions will be. Yeah, a few things you mentioned here, like starting out from the education system, didn't really incentivize you know more women to get into a more technical field, going into sort of the lack of role model to end a general basis in society. Those are sort of the chief reasons that um, sort of preventing women getting into data, right? Yes. Um, talking about AI a little bit, I was reading the made a article about the fighting letter of the AI written back in July 2019, and in cool. that article there was a section talk about the six values that the committee was being followed upon, ranging from striving for ethical application of AI to valuing diversity, for instance. How did your team at the beginning finalize on those values? Yes, so that was a community effort. In the beginning, we did a lot of workshops, mainly because we were all more or less around Berlin. So even the ones that were not in Berlin traveled to Berlin and we would have like an afternoon that we would sit down together in some space and we would start talking about like what could be our values. 
And then we would do brainstorming sessions on that. So I can say that a lot of those sessions happened in person, and then we would follow up by just writing it in a formal way, in a document, and then publish it on Medium. And that's how we came with those six main values. I see. So it's community effort for, for getting all those things together. Uh, yeah, Gil, basically you got two major initiatives. Mm-hmm. There's the more use case focused and the small career focused. So you are the director of the Data Lift initiative, which pushed to productionize more data analytics and machine learning solution. So my question is twofold. First, what have you seen to be the unique challenges preventing data and ML projects to get out of the purple concept phase? And second, what has been the data lift approach to move them towards deployment? Interesting. So, yes, I mentioned that one of the things that we discussed right from the beginning was the challenge to deploy more solutions. It was frustrating for us as practitioners, but also for companies, it's frustrating to invest in building a data science team and you don't see results. So I think one of the, to your question, right, one of the challenges that we see is really about the company culture. So it's not about the technology or the skills or even the team itself. A lot of the times it's about the company being able to shift from the previous culture to a data culture, to really understand data as the primary source of information and leverage that. That's also, I think, where the comparison comes with this, like data is the new oil. So this is like your raw value that you have from data is pretty much like the oil before being treated. You know, it's there, but what can you do with it? And you really need to work on pipelines. You really need to do a lot of different steps. And in the end, after a a lot of work or a lot of steps, you will have your value. So for business to understand that it was also something that I experienced myself when you get hired as the one or first data scientist and they want you to do everything. So basically there is no data storage. You have to build the data pipeline. You have to make sure that the data is getting there, it's ingested, is treated, normalized, and that is reliable enough so you can start building analytics and models on top of it. And then you also have to monitor your models to make sure that they are not drifting or you have to monitor your data to make sure that it's still following the same distribution as when you did your model training. So all of that requires also a bit of change in thinking the process because it's different than the previous one or maybe it's different just because it didn't exist before. And it's also different from software development. So it's different from traditional software development in a sense that machine learning is not an exact thing. You don't know what you're getting until you really train your model, right? You can have the expectation and you can set up a lot of the same uh, strategies for software development teams like Scrum, but you have to adapt somehow. So all of this is uh, learnings. I think the industry has made maybe since I started working, so almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think this is a lot of what has changed that companies are understanding better what is it that they need to do to accommodate this kind of work, which is a different way of working. 
working with data is a different day, uh, way of working. And it requires, for sure, a lot of investment in technology, but also investment in the culture aspect or how you're going to handle the team, how the team is going to work with stakeholders and understanding that the results are not like software results that you write requirements and you get the output as you describe it them. But indeed you have to accept the probability kind of aspect in which you don't know what you're getting. So there is the stochastic component of it. And that, yes, it's an iterative process. You no, know? you don't do it once and then it's ready and you ship. You really need to do uh, a lot of iterations and work to improve on each iteration so you get better and better models. Yeah. So it's really about that fundamental shift in culture and processes of how business should adopt data, right? Like, so removing the traditional approach of dealing software, waterfall approach now and more to a more agile thinking and accepting that probabilistic stochastic nature of machine learning in general. And my understanding is like with DataLift, this initiative, like, you know, AIQ also collaborate and partner with a variety of other enterprises and government to building this potential conversation for them to try out job method. Can you share a little bit about the context? What has been some of the challenges to having this partnership with DataLift? Yeah, so the way we started, they allow our members to show their use cases in production. So tell us what were your challenges, share what lessons you learned, and maybe from there that some other people that are in the journey to deployment can learn from you. So that's the first thing. It's a forum for the practitioners to exchange on a deeper level mm-hmm. what is it that they learn and how they can help others to do what they did to make their solutions to production. And this is something that we do via online events. We have done it seven times for until now. And we are doing it in June now for the first time in person. So we are coming together in Berlin, 300 data practitioners to share the challenges and lessons learned in use cases in production. So this is the first initiative. And then as the AI Guild, we are also offering consulting businesses because we learn also from the presentations with the practitioners, but having access to that network of practitioners, currently more than 1,400, we understand what are the challenges in, let's say, that industry that the company is in, or understand the level of maturity in data and AI adoption that the company is in. We support by evaluating the possible use cases possible use cases in production, if they're not in production, how to make it to production. And if you have use cases in production, how to scale that. So for example, make other use cases for other business departments or scale from batch to real time, all of that. I see two fold here. Like one way is to build a forum, initially with online events and soon to be in-person events for you to share their best practices. And then the second place is like do consulting taking some of the practices learned from those practitioners and then pilot it and then try it out with some of the consulting partners, right? So that's the-, the Exactly. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. So besides DataLift, another initiative that I want to talk about given your work with AIQ is called Data Career. So 
basically there are two things that I believe that you know the Data Career Initiative is focusing on. Number one is to build an independent accreditation board for the senior level, and number two is coming up with a coaching program for advancing data careers. Can you provide more context surrounding these two initiatives? Yes. So the idea of data career is to be able to provide one-on-one services to practitioners in which level that they are in their careers. So for the ones in the initial years of their careers, we support them by, for example, making the transition between the academic career to industry or moving from a different career to a data career. This is the kind of support for the initial one, two years. And then on the other side of the spectrum, for people that are already five years or more in the field, that is the experts and leaders, we have the accreditation. So this is for the ones that are looking for recognition between the peers and also for companies about their expertise. Because as I mentioned briefly before, comparing to the uh, martial arts awards of different colored belts, Mm -hmm. we don't have that for data science. So it is not so easy to recognize when someone is, let's say, a blue belt versus a black belt. Maybe for people that are in the field, it's easy to recognize, but for someone that is not so much of a technical expert, it might not be easy to recognize that. So the idea of the accreditation board is that other experts can validate your expertise and recognize you in whatever kind of field you chose to be an expert, for example, deep learning or machine learning or even others like product management for data products. Yeah, interesting in that context. And I'm curious for the people who participate in some of these data career initiative, are they mm-hmm. skilled more towards the earlier phase or are they more towards the senior level? Yes, yeah, so for the ones that we help with transitioning the careers, they are in the beginning. So maybe they're looking for their first job or they have been uh, less than one year in the job. Mm-hmm. And there the support is really helping to rewrite the CV so they get more interviews. I see. This is the main work we do with them. And then uh, for the accredited leaders, we have piloted the first program with 12 people. And from that, we are growing the program to talk with other experts. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. I'm definitely excited to see some of the impact and results that IIQ can provide for the broader data community in, in Europe in the upcoming months or so. To close out the main list of questions that I have, considering that you have been in the data field since 2012, how have you seen the evolution of the field over the past decade? I think I mentioned this already that I see a lot of the differences between what is understood now as data science by companies. So I think this is something that we have evolved a lot. Sure, we also have evolved a lot in technologies that are available. I mentioned when I started my master's degree, we had the launch of Spark version one, and now we have Spark version three, right? So it has evolved a lot uh, technology-wise and also um, the computing power as well. So we now do a lot of cloud computing, computing on GPUs. So this aspect of being able to implement the work and deploy it has improved a lot. And I think that is also what helps companies see more value in it. And I think we are also better at defining the different skills and roles that are needed for building data products. 
So before it was only the data scientist, then we saw the data engineer, machine learning engineer, the analytics engineer. So now there are a lot of different roles, still not standardized, but I would say that it's a lot of better defined. And also the definition maybe sticks for the future and we have less confusion, especially for the entry level. This is also from the work I do with the people that are transitioning for a career. That's the number one question. Like what's the difference between being a data analyst and a data scientist or between being a data engineer and a machine learning engineer? And a lot of the times there is no answer I can give because there is no common rule between the different job ads that you can find. Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective. Daniel, at this point of our conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and then you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire. Yes, I had to think about this and I have three names for you. So the first one is Andrew Eng, the founder of Deep Learning AI, co-founder of Coursera, because he did this course, Machine Learning. I think now he's even talking about having a version two, a updated version of the course. So this is the first machine learning course I took myself. When I found out that I needed to learn machine learning for my job, I went there on Coursera and did his course. So he's the one that introduced me officially to data science. I have to say that he is one of the names. And then I want to bring someone that is closer to me, or at least in Europe. This is Alessandra Sala. She is the president of Women in AI. So it's the global president. And she works as a senior director of AI and data science at Shutterstock. So she is also a very strong presence and very much an advocate for more women in data science. And the third one I want to bring is Joy Bulamini. She is the founder and executive director of the Algorithmic Justice League. And she has a documentary that was published on Netflix about the biases that we find in the workplace. So basically, uh, she is a researcher that is talking a lot about the algorithm biases and how to fight against them. She is also a woman in the field and she is a black woman. So she has a lot of experiences with that. And I believe it's what motivates her to work on this, but it's a very important topic. Yeah, those are great names. I'd be sure to include them in your profile. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an analytical mindset. Mm-hmm. I want to make a connection with Dr. Joy Bulavmini that I mentioned before, and I want to recommend the book called Weapons of Mass Destruction. Mm-hmm. So this is by Kathy O'Neill. She's also featured in the same documentary, and it is about an analytical mindset, but even beyond that, I would say is about understanding the touch points that algorithms have in our daily lives, even though they might not be transparent, and understanding also how we as data practitioners can influence that. Yeah. Then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? That is a good one. And indeed, it's something that because of the work with data career, I have the opportunity to talk to people in the entry level. So what the message I would like to give people is that your skills come with a responsibility and you have to apply that with care. You know, every data practitioner should have their own code of conduct, but yes, really think about the ethical aspects 
of the work we do, be responsible for the privacy and biases of the models that you produce, because we are also responsible and should be accountable for the work we do. Not only the companies we work for, but as practitioners also. Yeah, like pick the skill wisely and use it responsibly. Yes. Uh, so Dana, I really enjoyed our conversation today, learning about your background, growing up in Brazil, studying applied mathematics, getting into the field, working as a data scientist, some of your thesis work in recommend system, your move to Berlin, working across startup and big organization, some of the initiative, teaching SQL and doing data for good, as well as your current journey with AIQ, building the go-to community for data business professional advancing AI adoption in Europe. I really enjoy this first thread of your career and how you share such your learnings today and your ambition to give it back to the community. And I know the work that I use is very important. So is there any message that you want to share with the listeners about where they can go find out about the AIGU community? Yes, please. I would like to invite everyone that is listening to join the AIGU community. We are the fluent in data people and you can be a member free of cost. So just go to the website, theguild.ai and check out how to become a member. Fabulous. I hope everyone can continue with that and you know, watch out some of the events that Dana and the team have put on. So yeah, Dana, I really enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Yes, thank you very much for the time and for the opportunity to speak. It was lovely. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.